Matthew chapter 27, verse 27 to 54. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they'd crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. 
They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. doesn't matter how many times you have heard that Easter story. It's harrowing to be reminded of everything that the Lord Jesus endured. Think of everything that he suffered at the hands of his own people. To be spat upon and beaten. To be handed over to the enemy of all of enemies such that they could destroy his body, as we've just read. And all of that before he carried his own cross to the Calvary, where he suffered a death that was so awful that no Roman could possibly be killed that way. His body was completely brutalized. But nothing happened beyond God's plan. Peter would tell the watching crowds at Pentecost that Jesus was handed over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, which means God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were in complete control over everything that happened. All of this helps us see that this physical suffering is a demonstration of the love of God for his people. It can mean nothing less because God is in complete control of everything that's happening and the Son of God was willing to endure all of that physical suffering. But the physical suffering isn't the greatest suffering. The good news of Easter is not that we follow a martyr who suffered, it's that we follow a saviour who suffered in our place. Easter is not about sympathy. Easter is about substitution. And if you have a Bible, I wonder if you could turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. That reading of everything that took place sets the scene for everything we're about to remember as we come around the supper. But there are two passages I just want to take you to as we think about that great exchange, that substitution that took place that first Easter. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I'm sure there's other people in the room who would say the same. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel in one verse. That explains why in the middle of the day it became dark in the Middle East. It explains for us why the physical suffering that Jesus endured was not the greatest suffering that he experienced The greatest suffering was the holy anger of God against all of the sin of all of his people that Jesus took upon his place. And the remarkable thing is, God had been preparing his people for this sin substitution for thousands of years. 
We've learned about those stories in this church since you're children. You get a glimpse of it when you see Abraham almost about to sacrifice Isaac until the Lord provided a ram. We've seen it as we've looked through the Exodus story and seen how God provided the Passover lamb so that they would be spared the judgment of God from the angel of the Lord. We're about to get into the whole set of offerings and sacrifices in the Old Covenant. All of it is giving us glimpses of an idea of sin substitution. And running along all of those pictures are pictures that describe for us how serious sin is and how holy God is. Perhaps most powerfully of all is Isaiah's description in Isaiah 51 of the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah describes this cup being in God's hand. It's not separate from him. It's not beyond or outside of his control. It is his fierce and ferocious wrath against sin. One writer describes the explosive power of this cup like this. In the vivid imagery in the Old Testament, this cup is filled with fire and sulfur and a scorching wind like some volcanic firestorm, like all the fury of the Mount St. Helens eruption concentrated within a coffee mug. You drink of that cup and you die. That's what Isaiah tells us. It leads to devastation. And all of that sets the context for what Jesus cried out in Gethsemane before he died. It wasn't the fear of the physical suffering that had him so desperately upon his knees. He cried out, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will be done. What weighed on Jesus the most was the realization that he was about to drain the cup of the holy anger of God against the sin of all of his people. Not sin out there somewhere. If you're a Christian this evening, your sin and my sin. In that great exchange at the cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. It's a theme of so much of God's words. Peter tells us that Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree. He died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. He became a curse for us and was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Everything Jesus suffered, he did as our sin substitute. So that we might receive from him all that is his. Back in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Everything on the gospel depends on whether you are united to Christ, whether you are in him. He takes our sinfulness and he gives us his righteousness. Reading through a devotional for Easter, J.C. Ra has this beautiful description of what this exchange looks like. 
Was he flogged? It was done so that by his wounds we are healed. Was he condemned, though innocent? It was done so that we might be acquitted, though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was done so that we might wear a crown of glory. Was he stripped of his clothes? It was done so that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was done so that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a criminal and counted among those who had done wrong? It was done so that we might be reckoned innocent and declared free from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was done so that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. Did he die at last? And that the most painful and disgraceful death. It was done so that we might live forevermore and be exalted to the highest glory. Do you know that Jesus has done that for you? Do you know this evening that every evil thing you have thought, said, or done, every deceitful and dishonest thing that has ever been in your mind, every act of selfishness and sinfulness, all of it, the Son of God has taken upon himself. He has drained the cup of God's anger of all of that sin and given you the righteousness of God. That is what is good about Good Friday. Easter is about the substitution of a savior who suffered in our stead. That's what we celebrate. Not because we've earned it. That's what the kids were thinking about during the course of this week. It's because God loves us. And if you don't yet know that is true for you, what a glorious evening to come to God in repentance and faith. Good Friday. With that wonderful image that we read elsewhere in the Gospels of there being two other criminals nailed to the cross either side of Jesus, knowing they were guilty and had no possible way of earning anything yet finding forgiveness as they looked to Jesus and trusted in him. Don't push away the offer of forgiveness. If you do that forever, you will have to drink the cup of God's wrath yourself. And that is unbearable and unending. Jesus came so that you needn't if you trust and turn in him. Now for many of us in the room, we've been doing that for a long time. So what is it that we especially can be encouraged by this evening as we think about the cross? It's two simple things I want to remind you. The first is the most obvious. Keep coming back to the cross to grow in your love for Christ. It's all too easy in the busyness of life to take our salvation for granted take everything else for granted at points, don't we? When life's going well and you're fit and healthy, you don't for a minute really stop and think about what a blessing good health is. And then you come down with something, or you have an accident, or you need to have surgery, and all of a sudden you realize good health is a precious gift. Same is true of our salvation. Life is busy. And time is short, and 
there's always too much to do with family and friends. And it can be very easy for us, even as Christians, to take our salvation for granted. We need to keep coming back to the cross. In a former church that we were a part of, we used to sing a song that said, O precious sight, my Savior stands dying for me with outstretched hands. O precious sight, I love to gaze, remembering salvation's day. Though my eyes linger on this scene, may passing time and years not steal the power with which it impacts me. The freshness of its mystery. May I never lose the wonder. The wonder of the cross. May I see it like the first time. Standing as a sinner lost. Undone by mercy. And left speechless. Watching wide eyed at the cross. May I never lose the wonder. The wonder of the cross. The beautiful lyrics. They miss something. They miss something of the sense that the longer we gaze at the cross, our sense of love and wonder should grow. The more we realize who was nailed upon the cross for us, the more his spirit is at work in our life, exposing more of that sin that took him to the cross, the more he shows us the glory and the majesty of the God of heaven of what that cup meant, of all of my sin that filled that cup that Jesus needed to drink in order for me to receive the righteousness of God. As we gaze at the cross, as we grow as Christians, our love and wonder should grow. Keep coming back to the cross so that you grow in your love for Christ. The second thing, the final thing I want you to encourage me in, it's something the Lord's been pressing on my heart for some time. And it is that as we keep looking back to the cross, we would grow in our hatred of sin. As you read the account of what the Lord Jesus Christ endured, physically and spiritually, he did that because it was the only way God could deal with our sin and forgive us. There's a beautiful section in the Church of England homily of passion that says, let this image of Christ crucified be always printed in our hearts. Let it stir us up to the hatred of sin and provoke our minds to the earnest love of Almighty God. We often sing, don't we? Um, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. I hate that my sin crucified the Son of God. But over, I would hate it more. And realize the enormity of my need. And sometimes it can feel overwhelming to think about the reality of our sin requiring the Son of God to go to the cross. So as we grow in our hatred of sin, we also need to see what Jesus has done with our sin. We're always jumping straight to that wonderful truth that he has destroyed the penalty for our sin. 
But what the gospel tells us is that at the cross, Jesus destroyed the power of sin in our lives. Such that as we're united to him, it's not only that he's dealt with the punishment, but right here, right now, his power is at work in us so that we are not powerless in our sin. Last passage, if you could turn to Romans 6. I'm going to read a few verses here, as in a few of them. Um, But what I want you to listen to specifically is how Paul explains that our union with Christ means we're no longer controlled by sin. I want you to look at the cross and I want you to grow in your hatred of sin. But I don't want that to lead you to despair. As you look at the cross and see our union with Christ, I want you to see that his power has broken the power of sin in your life. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How then can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Here we go. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died in Christ has been set free. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. What does all of that mean for you and me? Paul tells us. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign over your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Isn't that a glorious hope? All that Christ has done at the cross, it not only has saved and secured our eternal future, but it has completely changed our identity right now. If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus, you are in Christ. You're no longer under the dominion of sin. And that means that this old self has been done away with. The body ruled by sin might be done away with. Not in the sense that we despise our bodies. We're not thinking about that. It's a description of how every part of our former life that was under the authority of sin is gone. And we have a new power. The power of a risen Savior, which is why Paul says we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. None of us are the finished article. That's why we come to this table. We're reminded again and again and again throughout our lives that as we stumble in sin, his grace is sufficient. We stumble in sin, his grace is sufficient. But it's not a pointless repetition. 
as his spirit is changing us, we should see the fruit of that sin-destroying power in our lives as he makes us more and more like himself. And we need that confidence in the fight, don't we? John Owen um, once said that there are two basic issues that a minister faces in life. I clearly need to work on it. I'm struggling with a few more than that, but John only had two to worry about. Evangelistically, we have to persuade those who are under the dominion of sin that they're under the dominion of sin. Pastorally, he said, here's the second issue, we have to persuade those who are no longer under the dominion of sin that they are no longer under the dominion of sin. Brother and sister, if you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, fix your eyes on what he has done for you. Look at the cross and grow in your love for him that he would willingly endure all of that for us. But don't let it stop there. Let it also be for you the reminder that in him, death has been destroyed and the power of sin has been destroyed. Such that we can live lives that are alive to God in Christ Jesus. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace.